Good. Well, there's so much in today's passage uh, that we could spend ages and ages on, but we simply don't have time. So you'll see as we go, we're going to focus in on what really is the, the main point of these verses, which is that they have much to teach us about greatness as God defines it, which you'll see as we go is actually not often the same as we would define it. Uh, And so we're going to get straight in from verse 28. So in verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings. Now if you remember what we looked at last week, what are those sayings that Luke's referring to when he says eight days after these sayings? It was Peter's declaration that Jesus was the Christ of God, the Messiah, the Savior. And then Jesus' subsequent conversations with his disciples about what it would look like to follow him. You remember, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, he needs to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, And so Luke is saying eight days after it was revealed through Peter's declaration that Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus said, this is what it looks like to follow me. This happened. Now, details really count for Luke. And here he wants us to sit up and pay attention about what's about to happen. Now, eight isn't a number that has loads of significance generally in the Bible. If you've read the Bible lots or you've been around church a long time, you might have heard people refer to like seven as a biblical number or 12 as an important number in the Bible. And those are numbers that come up kind of time and time again in the Bible that are rich with significance. But the number eight it doesn't normally feature on the list except for in Luke's gospel. And actually, Luke uses the number eight a few times to talk to us about important things. And here is really one of those because eight days is the number of days after birth that a Jewish boy was to be circumcised. And so Luke's already mentioned that twice for us. In chapter 1, we read that on the eighth day after John the Baptist was born, that he was taken and circumcised. And then in chapter 2, we read that eight days after Jesus was born, he was taken and circumcised. And just as circumcision was a a key event in the life of a Jewish boy, eight days after birth, Luke is wanting to draw our attention back to this significance of eight days. That eight days after it was declared that Jesus was the Christ of God, something significant in the earthly life of Christ is about to happen going to be significant. The other clue that Luke gives us, because he's all about the details, Dr. Luke, is that he tells us Jesus was praying right at the start there in verse 28. And repeatedly through his gospel account, Luke tells us that Jesus is praying when something really important is about to happen. Okay, so in chapter 3, when the heavens opened at Jesus' baptism and the voice from heavens spoke, you are my son well pleased with you and the the Holy Spirit came out from heaven like a dove and rested on Jesus. It tells us immediately preceding that, it says, as he was praying, the heavens opened and the voice spoke and the dove came down. In chapter 6, we read that he was up all night praying just before he appointed the 12 
apostles. In chapter 9, just before he asks his disciples who they think he is, just before Peter's declaration that he's the Christ of God, we read that Jesus was praying. And again here, we read Jesus was praying. And so against that background of like Luke trying to draw our attention to go, what's about to happen next is no small thing. We read this. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Wow. Okay. The upper mountain, Jesus is praying out of nowhere. Two Old Testament, pro- two Old Testament characters who've been long since dead appear in glory with him for a conversation. And Jesus' face is changed, made radiant, glorious, and his clothes become dazzling white. They, they begin to like emanate light. What's going on here? We get this momentary glimpse at the glory of Jesus. See, when Jesus stepped out of heaven and took on human flesh, we read in the Bible that his glory was veiled. And, and up until this moment, in Jesus' time on earth, his, his glory has been hidden from people. He appeared just as an ordinary man. There was nothing about his appearance that would draw attention to him. He was just a regular guy. His heavenly glory veiled in human flesh. Yet in this moment on the mountain, just briefly, his glory was unveiled. It's like the it's like the, the, the kind of veil was just peeled back for us to get this glimpse as his just Like, I can't imagine what it must have looked like. There's this moment in the Old Testament where where God reveals his glory partially to Moses. And Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God, it's like, if, if you really saw my glory, like, you wouldn't survive it if you saw it in fullness. So God hides Moses with his hand against the rock of the mountain, and he passes by his glory as a cloud, and then as he's gone past, then he lets Moses just kind of take a peek from behind. Just a partial glimpse. And Moses came down the mountain from that experience, his face glowing, radiant, with the, the kind of reflection of just being exposed to a tiny glimpse of God's glory. And then here on the mountain, Jesus' glory is revealed. It's emanating light from who he is. This is staggering. As a picture, these two heavyweight Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, appear with him. And Moses was the one through whom God delivered his law to his people. That told them how they were to live in a way that would set them apart from the other peoples of the earth in such a way that would bring glory and honor to God, that would point people to him through them this law that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. It's not insignificant Moses was there. Elijah, Elijah was one of those Old Testament prophets who who spoke forth 
what God was going to do through Jesus. But as if that wasn't amazing enough, that Jesus, his glory is all of a sudden revealed, and these two guys are there with him talking. What they spoke about is amazing. It's easy for us to miss in our English translations, actually, because it just says departure. And you think, oh, okay, just like about him going back to heaven. Maybe that's what we think about his departure that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. But actually, Luke uses an unusual word. The word that we have translated departure is literally exodus. They were speaking with Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What's the exodus? Well, the most significant use of the word exodus in all of human history, and certainly in biblical history, is when Moses led God's people out of captivity to the Egyptians, out of captivity to a tyrannical, oppressive captors who had taken them slaves. And through Moses, God led his people in the Exodus out of captivity and into a promised land. It's the Exodus. So when Luke uses that word, this is what we're supposed to have in mind. Actually, we know that the Exodus in the Old Testament was a pivotal moment in the history of God's people. But it was always designed to point forward to another Exodus. It was always designed to point forward to another way in which God's people would be led out of slavery and into freedom, into an eternal promised land where God would be with his people forever. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish, yes? Jesus came to lead us out of slavery to sin and into the eternal promised land with God where he will dwell with his people and we will be with him forever. And so here on the mountain, Jesus' glory is revealed, the veils peeled back and he speaks with Moses and Elijah about the salvation plan, about the fact that he was going to go to the cross in order to bring about freedom, true and lasting freedom for those who hope in him. It's a great moment, isn't it? No wonder Luke wanted to grab our attention and say, hey, this is going to be important. This is going to be important. Now, what goes on? We read from verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. You think, like, all this is going on. Whoa, guys, seriously. Were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men stood with him. Now, whilst Jesus had been praying, it seems that Peter and James and John were having a kip. Uh, and actually, it's not the only time in the Gospels that we read Jesus praying with his disciples and they struggle to stay awake. They just, like they're just dozing off. And it's happened again. But then we get this stunning phrase. It says, then they became fully awake and saw him in his glory. I, I found myself praying as I read that this week, Lord, that you would help us to be fully awake 
that we'd see you in your glory. I'm praying that for you guys today, for myself today, that we wouldn't be heavy with sleep, but that we would be fully awake to see him in his glory. Yeah? We carry on. From verse 33, And as the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke goes on to say, not knowing what he said. Peter realizes that this is a really significant moment. He gets the kind of import of this. He's like, wow, like I'm fully awake. My eyes are open. I've just seen Jesus in his glory. This guy who I've been walking with, I've seen him do amazing things. And actually, God revealed to me that he's the Christ of God. He's the promised Messiah. But wow, I had no idea like that's what he was really like as the glory of Jesus shines forth. And Peter's like, I don't, I don't want to leave this moment. I don't want to lose this moment. Let's, let's set up some tents. We're going to camp out here. Like one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We're sticking here. He decides the best course of action is to pitch some tents. And some people have kind of taken the mickey out of Peter in this moment, as though he, he didn't know what to say. And where Luke writes, he didn't know what he was saying, they've kind of taken that to mean, like, he just kind of blurted out the first thing. Like he just, he didn't know what to say. He was overcome in the moment. And so he makes this stupid suggestion of like, oh, let's set up some tents. But actually, that's not really the thrust of what Luke's trying to say here. He's actually saying, Peter didn't really know how significant what he just said was. Because Peter's suggestion of setting up tents linguistically was, was the suggestion of setting up a, a tabernacle or a tent, a place of meeting. And if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at the history of God's people before this point, you'll see that actually before the temple was built, Moses established a tent of meeting, a tabernacle where God's presence was with his people. They, they went to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting to meet with God because that's where his presence was. Peter grasped in this moment, this is, this is where the presence of God is. As Christ's glory was revealed, he went, you're God here with us. We should set up a tabernacle. This is how it is. the place where God's presence dwelt with God's people, where, where God's glory was present with his people. Peter hadn't fully grasped what he was saying. That's what Luke says. But what God is revealing here as the, the glory of God shines through Jesus is the fact that actually we now meet with God and we see God's glory in the person of Jesus. Not in a special place, not in a tent. We don't set up a a tabernacle anymore, although we're in a tent today, but that's not because this is a special place to meet with God. Jesus, the full expression of God's glory. Jesus was the fullness of God come to be with us. Jesus was, in a sense, a new tabernacle, a new tent of meeting in himself. He came as God's presence to us. We read actually in John chapter 1, and that the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh 
and dwelt amongst us, or as one translation kind of paraphrases it, pitched his tent amongst us, because the essence of what John's saying is that Jesus came and tabernacled with us, or tabernacled amongst us. That's what Peter has kind of blurted out here, not fully knowing the significance of what he's saying. And as he was saying these things, God confirms, like, Peter, you don't really get it, but this is seriously significant. We read from verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Again, as if to underline the point that Jesus was the the presence of God with them, the fullness of God amongst them, with them, God layers up for us another Old Testament picture of his glory. We've had Jesus radiating light, this talk of tabernacles, and now the cloud comes. We read about God's glory in the Old Testament as going before the Israelites. After the Exodus, as they went through the wilderness, God's glory going before them as a pillar of cloud. When Moses went up the mountain, we talked about that already, right? God hid him. When he said, God, show me your glory, God hid his face and passed by him as what? As a cloud. The glory of God came as a cloud. When the temple was built by Solomon, the place for God's presence amongst God's people, what happened when they opened the temple? It was filled with a a cloud. The glory of God descended on the temple as a cloud. Over time, sadly, the Israelites began to use the temple as as a place of glory for themselves instead of for God. It began with Solomon. And we read an account actually in 2 Chronicles 9 when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon's glory and she looked at his palace and stuff and she looked around the temple too and her comment afterwards uh, about having seen the temple is to say to Solomon, you surpass the report I had heard. And Solomon doesn't correct her and say, no, no, this temple is for God's glory. His glory surpasses the reports you'd heard. He just soaks it up. The temple, which was supposed to be used as a place all about the glory of God, used as like a prop for the glory of man instead. And because of that, we read again about the cloud of God's glory, God's presence. gets pictured again in Ezekiel chapters 8 through to 12. We see this progression uh, as actually God removes his glory from his people, removes his presence from his people. And we get this picture of the cloud actually, instead of descending on the temple, this time going up out of the temple and away. And for the next 600 years after that, God's glory isn't seen again. After God's glory departs his people in Ezekiel chapter 12, we go six hundred years 
Yes, with some godly people who trusted and believed, but God's glory was not seen. And so far in Luke's gospel, the glory of God has been kind of hinted at, glimpsed before this moment. In chapter 2 we read, you might remember it, we did it just before Christmas together, as the angels appeared to the shepherds on the hillside and told them of the birth of Jesus, of the birth of the Messiah, we read that the glory of the Lord shone around. That the first time for 600 years that the glory of God has been glimpsed in any kind of way is with the announcement from the angels about the birth of Jesus. But here now, on the mount, with just a couple of his disciples there, the veil's pulled back. We see after 600 years, the glory of God being absent, Jesus himself is now revealed as the glory of God. Jesus is the glory. His face shining like the sun, his clothes, his body dazzling white. This voice declares, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When you add all of this up that we've talked about so far, that that Luke's communicated to us so far, what you get is an understanding of God's view of greatness that we're going to go on to see a bit more in the coming verses. What you see is Jesus came in humility, his glory veiled. He came to dwell with us, to tabernacle amongst us, to bring God's presence to us to bring us into relationship with God by not beckoning us to come to him, but instead by him coming to us. And that he came to bring about an exodus, a freedom for God's people from slavery to sin and into intimacy with God. This most stunning revelation of the goodness and glory of God then would be at the cross, a place of death, in the case of Christ, of sacrifice. In other words, the kind of greatness and glory that we tend to seek for ourselves is the polar opposite to the way that God chose to show his glory and his greatness through Jesus. And as they head down the mountain, we're going to get to see that played out even more. Because they head down the mountain, straight away, Jesus demonstrates to us that God's definition of glory and greatness is really not the same as ours. Bear in mind, this is God himself in human flesh. His glory's just been revealed on the mountain. And the very next thing we read happens this. From verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. 
And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. The the people marveled at the greatness, the glory of God displayed in Jesus. But what was this? It was an act of service. Jesus comes straight down from the mountain and into mission. And straight away we get a powerful illustration of what he came to do and how he came to do it. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That he came not to live aloof in glory, but instead he stepped into the messiness and brokenness and suffering of humanity to be with us in it and to bring us freedom from it. Jesus comes down from the mountain into a chaotic situation, into a hopeless situation, into a broken situation, a desperate father and a tormented son. And he doesn't stand aloof from it. He steps in and he brings freedom to that boy and restoration to that family as he hands the son back to his father. And then straight after doing it, he takes a minute, while people are marveling at his glory, he takes a minute to remind his disciples that his glory wasn't going to be unveiled as a conquering warrior king, overthrowing the enemies, but instead as a humble servant, as a crucified saviour. We read this. From verse 43, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Now, you would think the disciples would pay attention, right? They've just been up on the mountain. They've just seen him in all his glory. They've just heard that voice from heaven again declare, this is my son. Listen to him. (laughs) Yeah, I think if I'd seen that and heard that, I'd like to think that then when Jesus also reiterates what his heavenly father has just said and says, let these words sink into your ears that I might have done my level best to pay attention. He says this, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples didn't understand. Their eyes were blind to see it. Their their ears were stopped up so they couldn't hear properly. Their hearts were dull. And they, they didn't ask, what do you mean by that? They were afraid to ask what he meant by that. I guess it sounds kind of ominous. He's already told them, we read in the previous chapter, that the Son of Man must suffer, be handed over, crucified, and rise again. And then he restates it again now. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's coming soon, guys. It's going to happen. The exodus I've just spoken about with Moses and Elijah on the mountain, it's happening soon. And the disciples are too scared to clarify just just like, what, what do you mean is going to happen? Just, just so we know. They don't really want to know. They don't really want to know. 
instead of actually bothering to find out what Jesus means and maybe grasping a better understanding of greatness as God defines it, the disciples do something really, really stupid. We read this from verse 46. Immediately after what's just happened, we read from verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Serious? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. The disciples just completely missed the point. Instead of bothering to say, Jesus, what do you mean? It's happening soon. They start a conversation about how great they are. Like, and who's the greatest? <laughs> you just think, for goodness sake, you've just seen him in his glory on the mountain. You've just heard the voice from heaven. He's told you about what's going to happen. And now you're arguing about which one of you's the best. And then Jesus uses this child as an illustration. Now, now the point, we can't get tripped over by the fact he uses a child. The point uh, isn't that there's something inherently great about children. Uh, or if we accept children, uh, then that's like a, a ticket into heaven or makes us great in some way. That, that would be to miss the point. Uh, rather, Jesus uses the child and as an example of someone who has uh, kind of very little as far as the world views things uh, in terms of bringing to the table or greatness. A, a child has no great might or power to accomplish great feats or to defend someone or conquer an enemy. If you're looking for a military leader, a child isn't on the list. Uh, a child really doesn't, hasn't, uh, uh, to this point, any great accomplishments to their name. They're not kind of revered as, as someone with great accomplishments. They don't really have any great wealth of their own, uh, only that which belongs to their parents. Jesus' point is that it's easy to be kind to the rich and powerful. It's easy to accept those who you think you will stand to gain something from. But that's not the case with a child. That's why he uses a child as an illustration. I think you accept someone who you don't necessarily stand to gain anything from. If you receive someone who is not going to like boost your reputation or status by doing so, that's the attitude you should have. He's calling his disciples to imitate him by showing love even to the least. Greatness, as God sees it, is a call to humility and service, and that's what Jesus came to model. It's the call that we read about in Philippians chapter 2. As we're exhorted to follow the example of Christ, we read this from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's greatness as God defines it. It's greatness as Christ Jesus modeled it for us and it's how we are called to live as Christians. To love those who maybe don't have anything to give us in return. To serve those instead of looking to be served by them. And Jesus is our great example. He veiled his glory. He came in humility. He came and served. And he came and humbled himself to death on a cross. And even after Jesus addresses it with his disciples, they still, they still fail to grasp it. This is one of the most heartbreaking verses, in a way, actually, when you've, when you've kind of read this whole trajectory of what's happened as Jesus has modeled true greatness to them. They've just been bickering about who's the best, and Jesus has corrected them, and immediately John says, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus says to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now there's more to this verse than that that we don't have time to get into today. But, but an aspect of what's going on there is John saying they, they even wanted to stop someone who was ministering in the name of Jesus just because he wasn't part of their inner circle. They've just been arguing about which of them is the greatest. And then they're like, that guy over there, he's not one of us. So we need to stop him and silence him because he's not one of us. We don't want him to get any of the glory that we deserve. They've got this so backwards. They don't want this guy getting any of the glory that they could potentially get, which is what they're ultimately interested in at this point in time, rather than recognizing that actually this is all about God's glory and greatness in the kingdom of God is found in serving others. The contrast between the disciples and Jesus in these verses that we've read today couldn't be more stark, could it? On one hand, we have Jesus. God himself come in human flesh. Instead of coming in all his glory so that people are just bowled over, comes and, and veils his glory, comes in humility, comes not to just blow away his enemies, but to sacrifice so that his enemies might be saved and forgiven and come to him. This is real greatness. But the disciples here couldn't be any different. The disciples' behavior consistently in these verses is marked by rivalry and jealousy and pride and selfish ambition. Instead of humili in instead of imitating the humility of Christ, they just they want glory for themselves. And I guess I want to ask, how about you? How about us? Where are we today? 
Like how much like Christ are we when it comes to our understanding and pursuit of greatness? Or how much are we like the disciples? See, in our call to imitate Christ, our challenge is that we're often not very content with the approval of God in Christ. We want the applause of people as well. Don't we? Like, you can be honest. You don't have to say anything, but you can be honest with yourself about it. Yeah? Christ was the one who deserved all praise, all adoration, all glory. He's the one who's truly deserving of all worship and adoration. And he came in humility and served. And yet we aren't content with the approval of God in Christ Jesus. Instead, we chase after and long for the applause of people. It makes us feel good. And so the pursuit of holiness through humble, self-giving, sacrificial love for others like Christ doesn't often register very high on our agenda. Instead, we are more inclined to give to people who we think will give back to us. We're tempted to serve, perhaps, if it will make us look good in the eyes of others. We long to be seen as great by other people, to be remembered as great. We want glory for ourselves and we grasp after it in the workplace, in our families, amongst our peers. We want to be seen as better than others. I, I admit it, right? That's so often the state of my heart. I want to be viewed in that way. And the indicators of greatness and status that are often valued in this world catch us and draw us. Physical appearance. We find ourselves measuring ourselves against others. How do we measure up? Like, are we, are we better looking, in, in better shape than the next person over there? How do we compare? We look around. Intellect. Are we smarter than them? Are we more articulate than them? We get better results at school, college, in the workplace. Our academic or professional or sporting accomplishments. Have I done better than them? We constantly looking to benchmark ourselves against other people. How do I measure up? We're like the disciples asking who's the greatest. I want to be. Material possessions. Keeping up with the Joneses. Like I've just got to have like, that. they've got that one. I want at least that one probably, hopefully one better than theirs so that they'll feel jealous of me. Social media, presence, audience, platform. And this is the whole premise that social media functions on, and it hooks us in. The image that we project of our lives, we want to be viewed as great. It's driven by our impulse to compare and 
desire to be compared favorably by others, liked. We get that little dopamine hit, and it pings on your phone because someone's liked a Facebook post, or you get your little heart on Instagram, the thumbs up on Facebook. We want greatness, and every like makes us feel like we're getting it in a small way. But we follow a crucified Messiah who utterly redefines greatness. This is our call. The truly great one is the one who is willingly to humbly love the insignificant. The one who is willing to serve for the good of others and for the glory of God rather than for their own reputation or recognition. It's a call to love and give because we have received so much from God in Christ. Love that we don't deserve. Every breath is a gift of grace from God. We've done nothing to earn or deserve it. It's freely given. And as we freely receive from him, so too we are called to freely give to those around us. Give the love because we've been loved. Not because we think that person can give something back to us. And yet we're so easily offended if people don't give back, aren't we? It puts our backs up. Like, I did that for them. Like, I don't know why they didn't do that for me. It's like, whoa, check your attitude. Why did you do it for them in the first place? Just because you thought they'd do it back? Or because that's the call of Christ, to love as we've been loved, to serve. We're so quickly angered when we don't get our own way because we want to be great. And people should make our lives good. They're there to serve us rather than us there to serve them, aren't they? We get cross when that doesn't seem to be the case. We're so much more eager to be served than to serve. But as we read together last week, whoever would follow Jesus is supposed to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. This is what true greatness looks like. Guys, it's a high call. It's not easy. And actually, in our own strength, we're not going to do it. We need help, don't we? I need help. I don't know about you, but I need help. I wonder if we could stand together. We're going we're gonna to sing in a moment and respond together, but I'd love for us to take just a moment to respond now all together. So I wonder if we can stand, but just if you, having heard this today, are going, Jesus, I recognize that so often I I'm after my greatness and my good and my glory rather than the good of others and the glory of you, then I'm going to pray for us. And just where you are, why don't you own this for yourself and say, yeah, that's where I'm at. That's my heart. I, I want to be more like you, Jesus, in this regard. Would you help me to love as I've been loved? Would you help me to serve? 
others as you came and served. Yeah? So just where you are, you can respond to this and then we're going to sing.